WBUR Boston and Slate. Hello and welcome to The Checkup, our solidly reported and also somewhat opinionated take on health news you and your family can use. I'm Carrie Goldberg, co-host of the Common Health blog at WBUR.org. And I'm Rachel Zimmerman, also co-host of the Common Health blog. And just to state the obvious, we're not doctors, we're journalists, so we're not claiming any medical expertise of our own. We just do the reporting and talk to the people with the medical credentials who are experts. This week, we're well into the beyond. We call this episode Grossology. So like, barf out! Gag me with a spoon. Get the picture. Okay, Rachel, I've got a pretty high tolerance, but just how gross does it get? Well, kind of gross at first, but all of these bits are actually pretty cool when you look past the gross factor to the big picture, which is that hygiene is sometimes overrated and messy can be pretty healthy. Great. I'm all for messy. What's the first topic? It's fecal transplants. Yes, that's That's right. right. A fecal transplant. It's like a heart transplant. But poop. Poop, really? Truly. And to put it simply, it's just taking a healthy person's poop and putting it into a very sick person's gut. And if all goes well, a few hours later, that sick person is much, much better. So it's like magic poop. How, how does it work? And are people actually doing this? Well, let's begin with the fact that there are maybe 100 trillion bacteria living inside of us. That means there are 10 times more of them than there are human cells in our body. And together, they're called the microbiome. And we're beginning to wake up to the fact that people can't live without a healthy microbiome. Mark Smith is an MIT microbiologist, and he's the co-founder of the nonprofit Open Biome. It's the first stool bank in the nation. And Mark calls the microbiome the little rainforest inside of us that keeps us healthy and helps us digest food. Sounds lovely. Normally, if you were to unleash a bunch of weeds in the rainforest where it's super dark and there's no room for a new organism to start to grow, the weeds won't be able to prevail against all the things that are already there. But here's where things can turn ugly. As Mark says, if you go in and you clear-cut the forest with antibiotics and then let some invasive species of weeds loose, it's going to grow really, really quickly. And that happens in our guts. That's basically what happens with a bacterial infection called C. diff, short for Clostridium difficile, a very nasty disease. Now, usually C. diff is just one weed in our gut's rainforest, but when strong antibiotics burn down most of our forests, C. diff can easily take over. And C. diff isn't one of those benevolent bacteria. It releases toxins that give people dreadful diarrhea that can actually kill you. And recently, C. diff has been gaining gut real estate. It's become the most common hospital-acquired infection in the country. Roughly half a million people get it every year, and at least 14,000 die. Probably that number is much, much higher. Okay, so where do fecal transplants come in? Well, it turns out these transplants have proven to be remarkably effective in the case of this one disease. NIH research shows that for C. diff, fecal transplants work in about 90% of cases. Yes, it is official. Doctors can now write you a prescription to eat and live. So here's one specific example. A woman named Catherine Duff, a mother of three from Indiana, had C. diff back in 2005. She got the infection and it kept coming back. She was going to the bathroom 20, 30 times a day and going to the hospital every other day for IV fluids. 
She had basically gotten to the point that her quality of life was so bad, she was actually beginning to think that death would be better. And her doctors had tried all of the drugs they could think of, and eventually they decided the only option was to remove her colon. Not a good option. Right. So in desperation, one of Duff's daughters went online and happened to stumble across fecal transplants. None of her doctors had mentioned it, and only two of them had ever even heard of it. So she got a fecal transplant. Yes, but she had to do it herself with her husband in their bathroom. That's a whole new level of marital intimacy. Uh, Yeah. So her husband produces a sample. They do some mixing, blending, stringing. Okay, no, I don't want to hear this part. Okay, wait. But they used an enema and introduced it in the afternoon into Catherine Duff's bowel. And Duff said by about 10 o'clock that night, she felt better. She slept through the night. And the next morning, she had enough energy to get up, take a shower, get dressed, and even eat. These are all things that she hadn't been able to do in months. And it's true. The the research suggests that these patients are better within a day. But not everyone has a spouse who has, you know, beautiful microflora and is willing to do this, right? No, unfortunately not. And the whole question of screening donors is controversial and political. Here's Mark Smith. The concern is if patients are using sort of at-home donors, they haven't necessarily gone through the appropriate screening protocols, that the donors may communicate disease at sort of a higher frequency than would be expected through, you know, more carefully screened donors that have gone through the medical community. Now, at Open Biome, the stool bank, and the 190 hospitals they work with, there's a fairly rigorous screening process with a clinical assessment and then a battery of 27 lab tests on blood and stool. And only if you clear those hurdles can you become a donor. Here's Mark Smith again explaining the process. For the donors that we screen, we start off with very healthy donors. People are often curious about where our donors come from. They're uh, exclusively researchers in the MIT Harvard community uh, who are very generous and excited about their uh, participation in the research. It's smart stool. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so I can tell you, though, that we start off with a very healthy population of potential donors. And even with that, more than half of the donors that we screen end up failing some of the screens that we put the donors through. Mark Smith tells me that, in fact, it's twice as hard to become a stool donor through Open Biome than it is to get into MIT. MIT has an acceptance rate of 8%, and the donor acceptance rate is 4%. (laughs) One can only dream. Yes. So, Rachel, is this a totally fringe thing, or how common is it? Well, it's certainly becoming more mainstream. There was a recent story on fecal transplants in The New Yorker called The Excrement Experiment, and that discussed fecal transplants for patients with Crohn's disease and other autoimmune disorders. But that's still considered totally experimental, right? Right. So the overall numbers are loose, shall we say. Wait, don't say loose, please, in this context. But people in the fecal transplant world say there have been about five to 10,000 of these procedures in total. Open Biome says it ships more than 70 specimens each week around the country to about 38 states. So this is really hot. Am I allowed to say this? This isn't on the air. It's a podcast. So it's hot sh- It's poop. Here comes the poop. Poop, 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 poop. We want the poop. So now let's focus on the very beginning of life, on birth, a time when transferring body fluids between mother and baby is really in full swing. Right. And with fluids come more bacteria, 
both good and potentially bad. Right, and the more we understand that some bacteria are good, the more we might want to keep them. Gloria Dominguez Bello, associate professor in the Human Microbiome Program at the NYU School of Medicine, has been doing research on exactly that. She's been working on the microbiome effects of being born by C-section and whether they can be counteracted. Counteracted? How? The theory is that if C-sections affect the bacterial populations of babies, then that could help to explain why C-section babies have higher odds of asthma, allergies, obesity, and other health risks. Okay, here comes the grossology part. Brace yourself. So you know how the usual drill is that when a baby's born, you wipe off the effluvia of birth and you get them all cleaned up and ready for snuggling. Right. Been there. Been there, done that. So this research explores the opposite, which which is that you use gauze to collect the birth canal bacteria from a mom who's giving birth by C-section, and then you wipe it all on to the baby. So the idea is you're giving the baby the bacteria they would have picked up if they'd passed through the birth canal. Right. So this research is still totally experimental. But Dr. Dominguez has gotten some really interesting initial findings. It looks like this birth canal bacteria could indeed make the bacterial populations on C-section babies look more like those of vaginally born babies. So if this pans out, does it mean expectant mothers will come in saying, I want to deliver by scheduled C-section, but make it up to me with some of my vaginal bacteria, <laughs> a little schmear? Right, give me a schmear. Um, it does not look that way. This method only partially restores the bacteria that a C-section baby would have gotten from passing through the vagina. And Dr. Dominguez says you really don't want to skip labor if you can help it. The microbes are just one part of labor, and labor is important. Well, some women, not me, but some <laughs> other women, not mentioning any names, Gary, might want to skip labor well, altogether. Yeah, I could have done without especially after 24 hours or so. So I gather this whole smear of vaginal bacteria thing is cool, but not yet available in your local OB ward or at your deli counter. With your bagel. No. And Dr. Dominguez says that personally, she had a C-section more than 20 years ago. And if she knew then what she knows now, she'd have used this gauze method. Of course, she could check out her own bacteria and make sure they were healthy before giving it a try. That's right. That's right. And she says she'd want a mother to have, and I quote, an acid lactobacillus-dominated vagina. Well, Carrie, one can only hope. Yes, one may not even know, in fact. Perhaps that's best. <laughs> What's next? I bet you're going to tell me how healthy it is to let babies roll around in dirt. Actually, Carrie, that's pretty much right on target. So back to those good and bad microbes again. Yes, we spoke with Moises Velasquez-Manoff, who wrote the book An Epidemic of Absence, A New Way of Understanding Allergies and Autoimmune Diseases. And he talked about the idea that maybe we've just become too clean. It's not that uh, we take too many showers necessarily. It's that we co-evolved with certain organisms. Um, and they've been around us so long, since the Paleolithic, which ended about 10,000 years ago, that our immune system actually depends on their presence in the sense that 
it expects the stimulus from, it, it could be uh, certain parasites, uh, it's a whole range of microbes, and that we actually are in this kind of symbiotic relationship with these organisms, and they've basically disappeared from the current environment. So uh, on one side, you have the sort of parasitic organisms that uh, they take something from you, but because they take up long-term residence in your body, they engage the circuits within you that are anti-inflammatory, essentially. And then the fact that they strengthen those circuits ends up preventing the emergence of these other inflammatory diseases. We're also in very close relationship with about two to three pounds worth of microbes in our gut. And they may be just purely mutualist, meaning that the relationship is beneficial to both parties. They're not hurting you in any way or taking anything from you. Every day you eat and then out the other end come your stool is something like half, you know, in terms of weight, it's half living bacteria. So you procreate maybe once or twice in your lifetime, but every day you're giving birth essentially to these microbes and sending them out into the world. So it starts to look like when you just pay attention to the microbes in the gut and to the microbes on our body and you feed them and you give them a nice warm place to live and you in some sense protect them from incursion maybe, it looks like that you're just a spaceship for microbes. Moises Velasquez-Manoff says to think of all this as if it's your inherited microbial wealth, like heirlooms. You need to get them from other humans and the most likely source is from your parents when you're young particularly if your parents work and perhaps put you in daycare with other germ-laden children. Ankle deep in grunge, mom will grab a sponge and clear away the soil from your face. Mushrooms grow on you, filthy through and through, dirt clod in your pocket just in case. Too dirty to love, my baby. And now a final parenting tip. A study out of Sweden a little while back found that children whose parents sucked on their pacifiers to clean them had one-third the risk of developing eczema, which is the most common early manifestation of allergies. This was when they were 18 months old compared to children whose parents did not suck on their pacifiers. It gets even better. Babies who were born vaginally and were lucky enough to have a parent do the pacifier sucking thing had an added boost, according to this study, about two and a half times lower risk of eczema compared to the non-pacifier sucking C-section babies. So the takeaway from this study, which was published in a reputable medical journal, Pediatrics, is that it looks like early exposure to parent saliva may help stimulate a baby's immune system. And that can mean a lower risk of developing eczema, asthma, and sensitivities to certain allergens. So basically, when my kids were babies and I was too exhausted to slip to the sink and wash the pacifier, and so I just sucked on it myself to clean it, that was a good thing. Great mothering, Carrie. (laughs) And this study actually suggests that oral flora is the key here and that the transfer of oral microbes from parent to infant via the pacifier might be used in primary prevention. All right. I think that's about all the grossology that I can take. That's it for this episode of The Checkup. Next time, a sexual reality check for women and men. As in, you may never be too old for sex. Also, surprising news about the range of penis size. Things are bad enough without the size of your organ adding even more misery to the troubles of the world. Right on, right on. Now.
and the nature of female desire. Ooh, sounds juicy. <laughs> the Checkup is produced at WBUR, Boston's NPR news station, by George Hicks, who also composed and performed our theme music. The executive editor of WBUR Podcasts is Iris Adler. Andy Bowers and Joel Meyer run Slate Podcasts. I'm Rachel Zimmerman. And I'm Carrie Goldberg. See you next time. See you, Carrie. See you, Rachel. Hi, I'm Allison Benedict. And I'm Dan Coyce. On this week's episode of Mom and Dad are Fighting, Slate's parenting podcast, we're talking about an amazing new sex ed class that parents and kids take together. Please search for Mom and Dad are Fighting on iTunes or visit iTunes.com slash panoply.